The Garden of God. Don't miss uh, the devotional materials. Uh, Adam's writing uh, those as we go along and has done a phenomenal job. They're on our website. Uh, you just scroll down on the front page and you can find all sorts of information there to help you on a daily basis walk through this stuff. Um, it's probably also linked in the weekly update. So if you don't have that, make sure you get hold of that. Last week, we started uh, in the beginning, beginning, uh, Genesis, uh, the creation. And we saw God work in really three phases. First three days, he brings order and structure and, and an environment. In the next three days, he fills that environment with beauty and function and a multiplying capacity. Also with his crowning jewel. Do you know what his crowning jewel was in creation? You me, humanity, and most importantly, himself. And then we arrive on day seven, the, the third phase. God finished the work he'd been doing. This is Genesis 2. Uh, and so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. It's a, it's a uniquely distinct day. I want to say three quick things about it. It's a rest, not in like the exhausted sense. Like you finish working and you just flop down in the chair and you just exhausted and you just wiped out. God was not wiped out. He was not exhausted. He wasn't tired. He spoke it into being. It was one of the easiest things he's really ever done. It was more like an ah rest. Like an Italian kiss. He just went, there's a perfecto. Just just a, that, that kind of rest, ah, like that. It's also not a passive rest. It's full of potential, this seventh day. Imagine, imagine you're, you have gotten your car in order. You've gotten your home in order. You've gotten your workspace in order, right? Whatever it is that uh, is your space that means something to you, and you, you finally get it where you want it. And you're like, God. Well, it doesn't stop there, right? You've, you've done that. You've created that space. You've got it the way you wanted so that you can do what you were intended to do with it. You're going to drive somewhere. You're going you're gonna, to uh, host guests. You're going to accomplish your vocation. Same thing with the seventh day. It's a day of rest. It's, ah, but it's also for, full of potential. It's now it's ready. We're ready to do something. It's not passive, if you read closely, you'll see, and you might even remember this in your own mind, if you read through the creation, what does it say at the end of every day? And it was evening, and it was morning the first day. It was evening. and When you get to the seventh day, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say there was evening and morning. Why not? Why not? Because this day goes on forever. We're, the eighth day didn't come after the seventh day, and the ninth day didn't come after the eighth day, and God's protecting. We're not in day, whatever that is, 100 million and 73. We're in day seven. This is where God intended us to live, in day seven forever. This is the place to be. This is where we are to live. And so there it is, creation, the garden of God. Humanity together with God in a safe place in right relationship with God and with self, with others, thriving and flourishing forever. And then tragedy, really. 
the most tragic thing that could happen in this beautiful space happened. They turned away from God. You know, you know the story. I'm, I'm going to skip ahead. They, they, were, they were instructed what to do and what not to do, and they were tempted uh, away from God, and they took the bait, and they disobeyed God, and they, they, they ran. They turned from God. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord of God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? You realize God's never been in this situation with humanity before. <laughs> he's like, they're, we, they're connected. It's the, he's, they're, we're the image of God, the apple of his eye. And he would always know where we are, but we're hidden. Where are you? And he says, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Yeah, we know. They had been disobedient. They were ashamed of their disobedience, and they hid. They weren't, they weren't hiding for no reason. They weren't playing a game with God. They were running from him. And so the Lord banished them, him, them, from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. It's so sad. It's so sad. Our perfect world of purpose and presence and peace, right? All the things that we long for, right? There's a reason that we long for them. We were created for them. It's not destroyed, but it is damaged badly by a cycle that continues today. We see the same cycle of tragedy that happened on that, in that moment in that day, still today, in our own hearts. It goes like this. Trust wavers. God is not as good as you think he is. God is not going to answer your prayers. What you're going through is uh, ultimately going to be bad. There's no redeeming it. What you've done is beyond repair. Our, our trust wavers. Fear takes root. Uh-oh. If God's not, if God's not going to, if this is going to last forever, if, if this, if it's not going to be, if I can't be, now I'm getting afraid and sin sprouts right there in the garden and we take matters into our own hands and we turn away from God. That cycle continues today. Trust Wavers, fear enters, sin sprouts, disobedience follows, and we turn away from God, which is the same as disobedience. The whole thing is a turning away from God. If you don't, if you don't hear anything else today, hear, hear these three words. I'll boil it down for you. This cycle, distrust, disobedience, distance. Distrust, disobedience, distance. Oftentimes in life, we find ourselves more associated with the distance. You've probably said it. Where is God? Why can't I hear God? Does he love me? Why isn't he answering my prayers? Whatever your experience is, you've been there, distance from God. 
it is almost always built on some kind of disobedience, which is built on some kind of distrust. That's the cycle. Fortunately for us, the cycle of sin, uh, the cycle of rejecting God, distrusting, disobedience, distance, also includes the mercy of God. The, the, the whole Bible is riddled uh, with a narrative that demonstrates the mistrust of man and the mercy of God <laughs> over and over again. And you can see it in your own life, right? Thankfully, that's a part of it. Even in this moment where his image bears his first, it's Adam and Eve are um, uh, running away from him, have disobeyed, have abandoned, rejected, slapped him. He makes garments for them and clothes them. He doesn't want them to be ashamed. He doesn't want them to be embarrassed. He's sending them out of the garden and he first covers them. Again, he's nurturing, he's compassionate, he's merciful to a fault. The remainder of the Bible is God working out his plan to restore that seventh day, to restore rest, to restore right relationship with him and with others, with ourselves and with the work that we do. We're gonna look at Abraham a little bit. But first, quickly, <laughs> from Adam to Abraham, quickly. This unbroken cycle of distrust, fear, disobedience, distance, and the mercy of God. You remember Adam's son Cain? Mistrust, distrust leads him to jealousy, fears, and killing his own brother. And that spirals through subsequent generations. Humanity ends up in chaos, leading to a very severe action by God. You know what, right? The flood. But the mercy of God we see coming through in the trust and the faith of Noah. Listen, listen to the echoes of Eden as God restarts creation with Noah's family. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase it. That's Eden stuff. I now establish my promise with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, all the wild animals, all that came out of the ark with you. You, you see a restart of the garden with Noah. And wouldn't you know it, the cycle of mistrust and the disobedience starts again. And after many generations, the people end up saying, come, this is Genesis 11, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Again, humanity turns away from God and makes it all about themselves. God foils that plan, mercifully restarts with Abraham to draw humanity back to himself again. The beginning of the Abrahamic story is Genesis 12, and you can hear, again, God aiming at restoration of the garden, reversing the curse and rescuing humanity back into what? Right relationship with God, right relationship with themselves, others, and their work. Listen, he says this. The Lord says that, who, who was then Abram, changes his name later, go from your country, your people, and your father's house to the land I will show you. I'll make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curse you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. It's beautiful. He's starting again with Abraham, and he says, your descendants in a land that I will take you to will be blessed, and they will be a blessing to all the world. And the cycle continues. <laughs> you think, oh my gosh. Genesis covers Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Judah, of which the 11th is Joseph. And we read all about those lessons. There's a lot of wonderful stories and lessons of faith and disobedience and mercy. You can learn, we can learn, we learn so much from it. But it is, the family as a whole, pretty dysfunctional. Pretty bad. Abraham, knowing that the, what the blessing means to him is I'm going to have land and children. And as the, neither comes, he starts to get desperate. He gives his wife away twice to other men. Sarah also becomes impatient. She gives her servant girl to Abraham. Each of those examples and all the other examples in Abram's life, you see this cycle rooted in distrust and fear leading to disobedience and distance from God. Not to mention pain that he brings to the people around him, right? Abraham and Sarah essentially make a mess and they get old, too old to have children. Abraham, back up and look at it. You, we can see Abraham making progress across the maturity continuum from fear to faith. It starts to become more and more evident right around Genesis 18. He's moving from distrust to trust, from fear to faith. One of the best things about scripture is people, humans, are on display for us. We see them as heroes in the faith, but if you look closely, they're just like you and me. All on this same journey, theirs just happens to be exposed for all of, you know, all of history to see and watch. So when we arrive at Genesis 18, Abraham's probably 90-ish by then. And the Lord appears to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre. He was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Probably a beautiful landscape, garden-like landscape. Grasslands, trees, figs, all that stuff would have been common to the area that that place was. Grasses. There might even been pastoral activities, meaning like shepherding sheep and all that sort of thing. Abraham looks up. He sees three men standing there. And just like with Joshua, he knows instantly that this is the Lord. So he goes and meets them. He bows down to them. And then he spends an inordinate amount of energy preparing um, a, 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 a festival of sorts, a ritual of sacrifice and honor to, to God. So he puts all that together and creates a meal for them. And while they're eating, he stands back and, and watches them. And then they eventually ask him, they say, where's your wife, Sarah? And he says, he's there in the tent. And none of them said, one of them said, I will surely return to you. This is God speaking to Amr. I will return to you about this time next year, right? You're, you're, you and your wife will be a little bit older, like 90, 90, mid-90s by now. But your Sarah will have a son. Sarah happened to be listening at the entrance of the tent. I love this, I love this part. And she laughed to herself. <laughs> you know, God says, your wife's gonna have a 
son, and, or, yeah, and, and you hear her in the can. <laughs> it's like crazy. And this is even better what happens between Abraham and God. God says to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Like he heard her laugh. He goes, did your wife just laugh? <clears throat> and, uh, and he says, why did your wife just laugh? Nothing is too hard for the Lord. And Sarah was afraid. And so she, she lied about it and said, I didn't laugh. Sarah laughs. God goes, did your, did your wife laugh? And then from the tent, she goes, I, I didn't laugh. <laughs> and that's the end of the story. We'll come back to that. After a lifetime of failure, and now beyond reason, this promise comes. Abraham honors God with his humility and his resources and remains somehow expectant, hopeful for what the Lord can do. And then this other really weird thing happens in the same chapter, chapter 18. These guys, these guys leave, Jesus and, and what must be two angels, or God and two angels, and they're, 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 they're walking past, they see or envision Sodom and Gomorrah, these horrible cities. And they decide they're going to cleanse the, the, the earth of these, these cities. And Abraham approached them and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? This is, a, this is a wonderful turning point for Adam, Abraham. It's really all been about him. And suddenly here in this garden space with the promise of God fresh on his mind, he exhibits an others-centeredness heretofore unseen. He's concerned about those who shouldn't be wiped away. Are you, are you going to wipe away the righteous with the wicked? And he starts to appeal. He says, what if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare that place for the sake of 50 righteous people? He's, he's having an argument with God. This is a huge step. He says, far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? And the Lord said, well, what do you think the Lord said right here? Did he say, <laughs> hey, who made you God? I'm God. Why don't you sit down and shut up? He doesn't. He says, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. <laughs> do you think Adam even, Abraham even expected that? <laughs> He's like, Sarah, did you see? Did you see? I just walked in there and I said, hey, man, you shouldn't. And God was like, he did it. And not only that, he kept at it. He worked it down. He negotiated with God that if they find even 10 righteous people in the city, that he would spare it. <laughs> this is phenomenal. We'll come back to that. Miraculously, they eventually do have a son, Isaac, who provides, ultimately, the context for the pinnacle of Abraham's faith. At this point in the story, Abraham has uh, had the, 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 the will of God and the revelation of God come to him. He's been through failure. He's been through fatigue. He's been through uh, infidelity. He's been through at all, and we get to the point where his faith is at least nearly fully developed. 
He's got this son. He's at least a teen. He could be older. And God says to him, take your son, your only son. Like he, that's odd. Your only son. Like that would be lost on Abraham. No. The one you love. Make no mistake, Isaac. Make no mistake, Abraham. Isaac, he says, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Okay, this is horrific, right? Pretty much every Christian on the planet, every pastor on the planet, everybody who's ever had to teach through this text is enormously uncomfortable what God is suggesting that, or commanding Abraham to do. None of us have great explanations for it. Put yourself in Abraham's shoes. I don't know what's going on there. But I personally wouldn't have, my struggle wouldn't be whether I would be trusting God or not. My question would be, would I be trusting that I heard God correctly? Right? Even if he, even if he meant it even, if it, even if it was God, which we see that it was, my posture wouldn't be I'm not trusting God. It would be I certainly am not hearing this right. I don't, I don't know. Well, we can be pretty assured, just like anybody who's had a son, a child, whether, whether biological or adopted or even spiritual, the level of connection and affection we have for those who have been entrusted to us. And I would imagine just like any father, he was threatened to love him more than God. Probably. At the very least, Abraham would be able to know and see how this son, who was the key to the promise of God, right? This is it, man. If, if I don't multiply through this son, the promise is dead and God was unfaithful. You talk about potential to be a hovering parent. This is... It would be very easy to imagine Abraham was pretty out of whack with how he was raising Isaac. And God steps in to remedy that in extremity. We see fear at every junction of Abraham's life. But in this one, we see a dogged, unwavering faith. He goes all the way to raising the knife, trusting God that he's going to somehow fulfill his promise irrespective of how this moment works out. And at the last moment, God intervenes, sends a alternative sacrifice. Abraham receives it and he with his son Isaac who's going to have a lot of questions when they get home. <clears throat> it's a beautiful picture that I've done only a moderately decent job of showing you about Abraham's life from fear to faith. The question is how do we travel across that same continuum? 
How do we go from fear to faith? How do we move away from this cycle of distrusting God, disobedience, and distance from God? How do we become those who are faithful, trusting, obedient, and living in the presence of God? How do we find ourselves? How do we uh, put ourselves in the midst of the garden that still exists, not as it's fully intended, that's still to come again, but at least for now, how do we live in it? I got a couple things for you. Continuance, conversations, and confessions. Here's what we learned from Abraham. Continuance, keep going. (laughs) Just keep going. My wife and I have found ourselves in, as you have, many of you have, in discipling, ministering, serving, caring spaces with those that are hurting, um, burdened, fearful. And I assure you, without exaggeration, the core of any ministry in that space is keep going. Keep trusting God. Keep believing. One foot in front of the other. Keep breathing. Keep going. We see it all through Abram's life, a life of complete of failure. We see it all through most, uh, if not all, of the Bible characters that save Jesus. We see them continuing to keep on keeping on. In Joshua chapter 1, we read this from God. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, Do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. The prophet Isaiah says, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Paul says to the Romans, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And James says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. Let me ask you this. Where do you need to stay in it? And trust. Take a second here. I'm going to give you at least 30 seconds. Where do you need to stay in it? Where do you need to move yourself from distrust to trust? You got one? Keep going. God is in it. And this segues right into number two. Stay in conversation with him. The writer of Hebrews says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. In Jesus, you can have a conversation with God safely. Any conversation. Any conversation. You know what God wants? You to be talking to him, even if you're yelling, even if you're crying, even if you're losing hope. 
I've had many a conversations where I'd started with, God, how could you turn your back on me like that? Now, that's a horrible thing to say to God. And you know what? He didn't. But that's what was going on in my heart. And my God tells me, you can pour out your heart to me. I'd rather have you yelling at me than hiding from me. When someone questions me, when I say, that I say that I told God, how could you turn your back on me? Which actually happens in an Indian accent for me because that's the, my best friend is the first one to say those words. And I was like, I resonate with that. So when I do it, I actually go, how could you turn your back on me? I hear it just like him, which he would say is nothing like him. It's a horrible Indian accent. How can you turn your back on me? People say, how can you say that? How can you talk to God like that? I say, well, because I know he's real. It would be worse for me to give up, to run away, to walk away. I, I know he's real. I know he's powerful. I know he can do it. And I know he can handle me for a darn sure. Conversations with God require quite a bit of vulnerability and honesty. God's not looking for a polished prayer. He's not looking for a particular posture. He's looking for what is really in your heart. He can already see it. <laughs> he knows I'm thinking, why have you turned your back on me? There's no big surprise when I say it. You got to be honest in your conversations with God. Some of those conversations are private. Some of them should be public. We live in a community. We are created to be a community. And the reason we ask you to be in community with other Christians is so that you can be in conversation with God with others. It's helpful in the process to have others along with you in your conversation. Don't forget that conversations with God could and should, maybe I can say should, mostly be listening. And if you try to mostly listen, you'll probably be only talking like three times as much as you're listening, right? right? <laughs> Intending to listen doesn't mean you're going to be mostly listening. For most of us, it's moving in the right direction. Listen for long periods of time. Uh, there's reading and writing involved in conversations with God. Thank God there was reading and writing in these conversations with God that we look at every week in this church. Read them. Read the conversations that, are, that have previously gone on with God. We learn so much from the conversations of those who follow God in Scripture. And do some writing. Spend some long times in conversation. A day, a week, a year. Have some short times with God. I, I, I have short conversations with God all the time. I say something like, what's up with that? And then I go to lunch. Like, I don't understand, God. Well, why would you do that? <laughs> or thank you, God. Praise God. Praise God. 
A friend was telling us this week that, uh, about the progress that he's made in certain areas of life because he learned to praise God. <laughs> he just learned to praise God. And say it, praise God. Short conversations, long conversations. Let me ask you, what do you need to talk with God about? It's probably associated with what you need to keep going about. Keep going. <laughs> keep talking. What do you need to talk to God about? What do you need to shout about? Do it. Keep talking. All conversation with God is good. Stay in conversation. So if you're continuing on with God, if you keep going on, if you keep continuing and, and you keep conversing, what you're going to find yourself needing to do is confessing. Keep going. Keep talking. Keep apologizing. All through the Abrahamic story, we see him faced with his own shortcomings. Learned that it is God who is able to do the redemptive work that is needed, and it is God who's going to do it. The writer of Proverbs says, whoever conceals their sins does not prosper. But the one who confesses, renounces them, and finds mercy. James says, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Paul says, repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be... Oh, actually, I don't know who said that. It's in Acts chapter 3. Who said that? Probably Jesus. He said repent a lot. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. They might have been calling back to something that Jesus said. I don't remember. Repent. Turn back, sins may be blotted out. Turn back, right? You've turned away. Distrust has led to disobedience, has led to distance. You've turned away from God. Turn back. And part of that turning back is continuing on its conversation and its confession. What do you need to confess? What do you need to apologize for? Just work your way backwards from the distance to and in this conversation with you and others, you can find the disobedience and then you can probably locate a fear. You find your fears, you find your temptation. If you find your fears, you find your temptation, you find the opportunity for distrust. If you find your fears, you can anticipate your disobedience. If you can find your fears, you instantly have something to apologize right there. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You know, when the storm swept up on the disciples in the boat, they were afraid. But they became more afraid. Do you remember when they became more afraid? When Jesus stood up and went, be still, and the cosmos listened to him. And they went, uh-oh, this is, whoa. <laughs> they went from being afraid of the storm to being afraid of Jesus. Afraid like he's going to hurt me, afraid? No, afraid like, wow. Find your fears and you will find that your fears are, uh, of God aren't in the right space. Right. It is once you fear him in a reverent, holy, sovereign entirely trusting way for who he is, the other fears begin to fade. But in the meantime, search out your fears and you will find out where your need for confession will be. 
Where have you been passive because you're afraid to obey? Where have you been unfaithful and untrusting because you just can't see how God could possibly work it out? Those distrusts are sins that need to be apologized for, that need confession. Where are you afraid of not having enough? And what selfish actions have come as a result of that? Where is it in your life you don't feel like you are enough? And you've taken it into your own hands. Are you afraid of unknowns to the point where you escape life in illicit ways? Afraid of being alone? Afraid of losing loved ones? So you become controlling or protective. Do you see what I'm saying? Look for your fears and you will find the first places which we need to confess to God or lack of trust before we even get to the disobedience. Find yourself stressed and anxious because you can't figure out the culture, uh, your politics. Afraid of death itself. And then start thinking about how your disobedience has not only hurt you, hurt God, but have hurt others. One of the biggest lies is it was, I'm only hurting myself. No, you're not. It's confessions that need to be made to God and to others. Let me ask you, where is an apology in order? Where is your next confession? Is it to God for doubt, disobedience? Is it to another because of your own actions that have emerged from doubt? And you've probably been hurt by others. You're not the only one that's trying to get from fear to faith. <laughs> Are you still shocked when people hurt you? At some point, you got to realize they're human, like you. <laughs> You're going to get hurt. It's part of it. So does forgiveness need to be part of it. Where do you need to forgive? Moving from distrust to trust, moving from fear to faith, requires continuing on. It requires a communication with God. It requires confession. And it requires another confession. There's that kind of confession and then this kind of confession. We remember what God has done in antiquity and in our own church Remember how, how great he is, strong he is, how faithful he is. And we tell him again in all circumstances that he is our strong tower. We confess to him that he is the one. 
He is king. He is on the throne. We just confess it. Again and again and again. And then we confess Jesus. We keep trusting God and we keep resting in Jesus. All of our distrust, all of our fears, all of our disobedience, all of our distance from God leave us undeserving of him. But he has provided a lamb in the thicket, a substitution, and we confess the words that Paul gives us in Romans chapter 10. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You know, Jesus said, I am the Sabbath. We tend to think of Sabbath as a day. We tend to think of the seventh day as a day in the past. Our rest in God is today in Jesus. In Christ, we are at rest in the garden now and forever. If you haven't made that confession, I would invite you to the table. During this next song, afterwards, whenever, come up here and say to Jesus for the first time, yes, I get it. I want to rest in you and your work, not mine, now and forever. Just do it. Let's pray. God, thank you for Abraham, Sarah, their faith, their trust, their vulnerability, their humility, their conversations, their confessions, they teach us something. Just like 614 so tenderly and meaningfully said, we stand on your shoulders. God, would you tell Abraham and Sarah for us, we stand on their shoulders. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen.